we know, for example, that among the adult men who sexually assault women, among adult male rapists, in other words, most of those males first sexually assaulted someone, first sexually coerced someone at around 16 or 17, in their mid-teens, 14, 16, 17, 18. And so we need to intervene at least before then. And so schools are one important site of intervention. So is parenting and how we socialise boys and girls. So is popular culture. You know, think of gaming, think of pornography, think of some of the forms of media and culture that often socialise boys and girls into violence, into sexism and so on. And so to stop perpetrators being made, we actually need social and cultural change, social and cultural change in schools, in media, in universities um, and so on. Welcome to the Medusa's Mic podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honoured to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. I'm really excited today to introduce to you someone who has been described to me as being highly and well-respected within the violence prevention sector, and that is Dr. Michael Flood. Michael is an internationally recognised researcher on men, masculinities, gender equality and violence prevention, and he is an associate professor at the Queensland University of Technology here in Brisbane, where I am currently recording this podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. I am so excited for our conversation today. Thank you. You, You've got me cringing with embarrassment, you know, at the very start (laughs) of this interview. It's a very kind of I don't know, boastful thing. It's not how I typically talk about myself. But anyway, look, I'm delighted to be here and looking forward to our conversation. (laughs) Well, I I try to research my guests and certainly as we were discussing off, off mic, in a sea of women researchers, you are one of the few men who is doing works in this space and that does make you stand out. I am constantly looking to scanning the environment and the landscape, trying to find men talking about preventing violence, preventing sexual violence. And unfortunately, it is still quite barren when it comes to men talking about it, men taking action and men being proactive. Why do you think that is? Look, I think it's entirely predictable and it's, you know, it really reflects that women come much more readily to the issue of particularly of men's violence against women than men do. You know, I think, you know, you compare men and women in general, women are just far more aware of issues of domestic and sexual violence, partly because they're subject to them uh, or have, you know, a sort of under pressure to manage their own risks of sexual assault and domestic violence, or they've experienced themselves, but also because of gender socialisation in general, just means that men's awareness of domestic violence and sexual violence just tends to be poorer. We tend to define those behaviours more narrowly. We're more likely to have 
some kinds of violence supportive beliefs to believe that, you know, to excuse or minimise domestic violence or to believe that sometimes women bring it upon themselves or to believe that, you know, perpetrators can be excused in some ways. And so there's just a gender gap and that plays out then in who gets involved in these issues. And so that means women come more readily to the issue than men. But look, I'm really pleased to see that there are a growing number of men in Australia and internationally who are speaking up, who are taking action. And I'm, you know, I'm one of a small number of men in Australia who are doing that. But internationally, there is a growing body of men and men working with women taking action on violence against women. And there are also a growing number of programs and interventions really focused on the positive role that men can play in their families and their communities, in their workplaces and so on, as positive advocates for ending violence against women. I am of the personal belief that until we get traction with men and boys, until they play a far more active role in preventing sexual violence and acknowledging the issue and taking some ownership of the issue, that until we see that, I don't think we're actually going to see a huge shift. I know we're seeing some little incremental changes around the edges, but the conversations that I have with women of all ages still suggests to me that there is a huge amount of work to be done. And women have been literally screaming about this for decades. You know, I know in the 90s, I was doing feminist studies at university and the issues we're talking about now are the same issues. And until we get men involved, I don't think that's going to shift. Yeah, look, I, I certainly think that to make significant progress in ending domestic and sexual violence, by definition, we're going to have to change the attitudes and behaviours of some men because those behaviours, domestic and sexual violence, they're perpetrated largely by men, sometimes by women, but largely by men. And by definition, therefore, we're going to have to change the attitudes and behaviours of those men to to end the problem. But we're also going to have to change the attitudes attitudes and behaviours of other men who condone or turn a blind eye to that behaviour. And absolutely, I think that one key way to make progress will be to get more men involved as advocates, as activists, get more men involved in campaigns, involved in movements, and so on. But there's other ways we can change the attitudes and behaviours of men as well. And so, for example, the feminists, the women's movements have shifted gender expectations in some ways. And one thing that's meant is that women have higher expectations of men than they used to. Women's expectations that men won't coerce them into sex, will treat them with respect, won't try to control their movements or their contact with friends and so on. Those expectations have shifted. And so men's attitudes and behaviours are shifting in response to that. So I think, you know, in terms of making progress to end domestic and sexual violence, absolutely we'll have to change men. But getting men more men involved as advocates is only one part of that. Also, mm. another part of it is changing men's everyday behaviour as boyfriends and husbands as fathers, as coaches, as political leaders, as, you know, workplace colleagues and so on. In other words, to end domestic and sexual violence, we will need wholesale cultural change in many men's lives, actually, towards respect, towards equality, towards nonviolence. I can appreciate it is just in the space of my adulthood, so talking from the early 90s through to now, there's been such a shift in how men and women relate and the parameters that are considered acceptable now. Well, so considered acceptable no back too. then, but now are not acceptable. Yeah. You know, it's been quite a shift. So, so one, you know, one really encouraging shift, for example, is, is more people these days than in, say, the 90s or early 2000s agree that domestic violence is a crime, agree that it's not okay for, you know, one person in a relationship to physically assault 
their partner. And so there's been progress when it comes to some aspects of understandings of domestic violence. But progress on other dimensions of domestic and sexual violence has been much slower. So, for example, we've made less progress in getting people to recognise sexual violence, including sexual coercion, particularly in marriage and in relationships. We've made less progress in raising people's awareness of non-physical forms of coercion and abuse, you know, constantly checking up on your partner or controlling their movements or isolating them from friends or depriving them from money. So community recognition of those non-physical forms of coercion and control is weaker, is poorer than it is for, say, physical forms of violence, like, you know, punching your, your partner in the face. And so, yeah, I agree, since the 90s, some things have changed in terms of people's expectations of relationships, of sex and intimacy, but other things haven't changed as much and there's still a lot of work to do at the kind of level of culture, at the level of what women and men expect in their relationships and their family lives. I know that you've done quite a bit of research into how we can uh, transform young men's attitudes, understanding that the younger we can nip these bad habits and bad approaches to relating to women in the bud, the better. I'm curious to know some of the conversations I've had with young men, and I count a number of young men as my close personal friends, when I've talked to them about statistics, for example, about sexual violence against women, statistics around sexual harassment. Basically, almost every woman has been sexually harassed when they've been an adult or as a child, and a huge number of women have been subjected to sexual assault and rape. And I don't actually think the statistics ever fully capture the breadth and depth of that problem. I think it's grossly underreported just from the conversations that I have. But I know that when I try to talk to young men about this number, I just say, look, this is an issue and we need to, this is, you will know people who are doing these behaviours. And these are good young men, okay, people, that young men that I respect. But often I will get the responses, oh, well, I would never do that. And oh, none, of my, none of my friends, none of my male friends would do that. And logically, if you look at the statistics, for example, if almost every woman has been sexually harassed, we're not talking about 10% of men doing those behaviours. We're talking about a large percentage of men doing those behaviours. Otherwise, it just doesn't add up. And I find myself at a little bit of a loss in how do I, how do I have those conversations with those young men? Because statistics, they're, it's the instant, well, it's not me and it's not anyone I know, and the, the shutdown. And I understand it's very uncomfortable for men to sit in that knowledge that it is such a huge problem. How do we get cut through? How do we bring them along? How do we get that acknowledgement in the first place that they it is a problem they should be engaged in. They do know people who are doing these behaviours. And how do we bring them along that journey and empower them to take action? That's a great question and a very big question. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I think for lots of men, there's this sense that, you know, violence against women is a problem, but it's a problem of a tiny minority of mad, bad men. So it's certainly not a problem that impacts them or the people around them. And, it, and it's not their problem. So lots of men will say, oh, you know, that's bad. It's bad that that happens, but what's it got to do with me, just as you've described? And I think men very, very, very much underestimate the extent 
of domestic and sexual violence, the extent to which it affects the women and girls around them, and as, if you, as you've said, the extent to which the men around them may themselves be perpetrating that violence. And, you know, it's very comforting to kind of do that. So I think statistics, you know, statistics can be valuable, but I think what's much more valuable is to make them real, is to make them personal. And certainly one strategy that we know increases men's sensitivity, increases men's awareness of the issue of violence against women is to personalise the issue, is to, is to get men hearing women's stories. Because if you ask the men who've come to a kind of passionate commitment to ending violence against women, one of the things that many of those men say is that it was hearing women's experiences that made a difference. Hearing the experiences of women they knew, a female partner, a sister, a daughter, a female friend, or hearing public stories, you know, Rosie's Batty story or the stories of the schoolgirls in Chanel Contos's petition and so on. And so hearing women's stories, whether it's the stories of women and girls they know or women and girls they don't, is one important way to personalise this issue and can make progress in getting men and boys to think this is an issue that affects large numbers of women and girls. I think what's harder still is to get men and boys realising that some of the men and boys they know, you know, men who they think are nice guys, good blokes, may themselves be perpetrating violence. And two things there. One is that I think we have to broaden particularly men's and boys' understandings of what counts as violence. You know, most men and boys will recognise if, you know, you're you're punching your girlfriend in the face and giving her a black eye, well, that's clearly violence. But they won't recognise that kind of, you know, verbally pressuring her or kind of nagging her for sex or for constantly insulting her about her weight or calling her a slut or doing other things that are abusive and controlling, that they're part of the spectrum of violence. So one thing we have to do is broaden men's understandings of what counts as violence and the impacts of that violence to actually give men a sense of the impact that has for women and girls. And a, a second thing I think is to kind of break down the idea that nice guys, that good bloke, you know, the myth that they would never use violence and to kind of point out that violence is sometimes perpetrated by men who to their friends, to others seem to be, you know, good guys, upstanding guys and so on. And to give men some sense of the strategies, the kind of sneaky strategic ways that that individuals will hide their violence or excuse their violence and so on. So I think that's that's important. Certainly many men and boys start with a defensiveness, a defensiveness about these issues. Mm. And so it can be useful to start with the positive, to start with the message that most men and boys don't use violence. And to, you know, when a guy says, I don't use violence, to kind of praise that and to say, it's great that you do that, great that that's the case, and then to try to build on that. You know, but what do you what do you do when a mate is, you know, constantly texting his girlfriend 40 times a day and asking her where she is? Or when you hear some guy talking about women in a disrespectful way, you know, what can you do about that? In other words, to try to invite boys and men to be part of the solution in other ways, more than just not using violence themselves and to invite them to be aware of how saying something or not saying something has an impact. If you don't say something, you're effectively accepting that, you're condoning that behaviour. And so I think beginning with the positive, but also inviting a role in change is important. Another strategy is to appeal to values. Many men and boys, you know, have basic values of, you know, people should be able to be safe. People should be able to, you know, have respectful, enjoyable, mutually pleasurable relationships. You know, basic values of fairness and respect and safety are also, can also give give us leverage, give, give us traction in those conversations with men and boys. So there's a couple of things coming up for me there I'd like to ask you uh, to talk a little bit more about. The first thing is around how do the 
nice men, inverted commas, who are perceived to be nice. How, what are the sneaky ways that you talk about how they hide their behaviors? What are some of the things that you can look out for when it comes to that side of things? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think if we can broaden men's and boys' understandings of what counts as violence and empower them to kind of feel like they can and should speak up when they encounter that, then I think that will that will shift their awareness of kind of what's going on. So one example is, you know, we know that there are individuals who are kind of, you know, upstanding members of the community who are, you know, Lord Mayors or sporting heroes or, you know, film celebrities. And then the stories come out of the ways they've behaved in a coercive, in coercive or abusive ways in private. And I think getting increasing men's understanding of the way that someone using violence against their partner will manage that won't you know won't behave in that way in front of their boss won't do that at the company picnic but will behave in that way when she gets home or will deliberately you know use physical violence in ways where the bruises won't show where they're covered by clothes or will gaslight that woman or her family members or others so that she and others blame her for the violence see her as having caused it or brought it upon a brought it upon herself or in fact is lying about the violence or you know is kind of making up stories so i think you know one strategy is to just get men and boys as well as women and girls more aware of some of the the kind of strategic and devious ways that some perpetrators will behave as well as just broadening what we count as violence Mm, mm. i guess that brings me to my next question and It's quite timely because yesterday I happened to see that the UK has launched a new campaign called Have a Talk With Yourself and it's targeted specifically at young men and it plays out a scenario on the screen with a young man harassing a woman by herself on the street and then one of his mates is having like this internal conversation with himself and ends up speaking up. And I thought it was really great to see. And certainly there are a lot of comments on socials that I saw in Australia saying, well, this is what we need to be doing more of. And I absolutely agree with that. And certainly, Michael, I know you and I have talked before about campaigns that have been done in other countries, like the one in Scotland that we've talked about uh, previously where we really start to talk directly to young men in language that they can relate to with visuals of people that they can relate to so that they can actually start see tangible ways that they can take action in if they find themselves in a particular situation so they feel empowered to speak up. Because I really do feel, and one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast, is that A lot of people, everyday people, want to take action. They want to stop sexual violence. They want to stop domestic violence, but they don't necessarily know what they can do about it. And so when I saw this campaign yesterday, I'm like, yeah, well, why aren't we doing that in Australia? I really think we should. So I guess my question for you around that, because I know you mentioned to me earlier that you haven't yet seen that campaign. You've just seen a bit of talk about it. I guess what I'm curious to know from your perspective and based on your research, what is it that you would recommend to young men? What can they say when they are confronted with particular situations? How can they take real tangible action that is effective and realistic for them? in their daily lives. The kind of, I mean, just back to that campaign, the kind of campaign that is, is a bystander intervention campaign. So it addresses young men as bystanders, that is as witnesses to other young men's violent or abusive or violent supportive behaviour, whether it's actually harassing some woman or taking up her space or speaking in derogatory ways about her, whatever the behaviour is. 
And it addresses young men as bystanders to that. And they have a choice. Are they passive bystanders who do nothing and thereby let that behaviour continue and condone it? Or are they active or pro-social bystanders who speak up, who take some kind of action? And bystander intervention campaigns, such as that, that media campaign you've described, they invite, in this case, they invite young men to be active bystanders, to play some role. And I think those kinds of campaigns are very powerful and positive. And there's certainly good evidence that well-designed communication campaigns focused on bystander intervention can be effective, can increase people's willingness to take action and their actual taking of action. And there's really five things you've got to do. First, you've got to you've got to make um, those young men more likely to recognise that there's a problem, that calling out, hey, show us your tits to someone we're walking past is a problem, is, is harmful behaviour. Second, you've got to give them a sense that they should do something about it. Not only is it a problem, but it's their problem. It's something they have responsibility to address. Third, you have to give um, them a sense that, a sense of confidence, a sense of confidence that they can do something about it. Fourth, they need skills in how to respond to actually, you know, what action they're going to take. And fifth, to actually take action themselves. So your question was about what can young men actually do? And I've written about this. I wrote a, I wrote a report for White Ribbon Australia called Men Speak Up. And in that report, which is freely available online, I talk about the very everyday ways that men can say something. When, for example, you know, someone um, is making a sexist joke or saying that some women asked to be raped or saying that some women bring it upon themselves. And one obvious thing to say is, you know, you know, would you say that if that was your sister? Would you say that if that was your daughter? To kind of personalise the issue and bring it home. Another is just a simple statement of opposition. You know, that's not right. I don't agree with that. That's bullshit, that kind of thing. An easy statement of opposition. Of, you know, I don't agree with that. I just think that's wrong. Or, you know, to give facts, um, to say, look, no women asked to be raped. I've spoken to women who've been raped and they said it was a horrible, degrading experience. It stayed with them for years. It really affected their sense of being in relationships, their sense of safety around men, just to, you know, tell stories, state facts, and so on. And, you know, there's a whole range of other things we can do. But, but certainly I'd say to men who, who are around a situation where there's some guy saying something stupid like that or behaving in a harassing way, do something. Have a go at something. Speaking up, you can always take them aside afterwards and say, you know, that, that really wasn't cool what you did. You know, I felt pretty yuck about that. You know, that's not, that's not an okay way to behave. You can also distract. So I've sometimes used bystander intervention when it was, it was a guy I didn't know. So for example, you know, being, being out in the city late at night and seeing this woman, uh, seeing this man, he had his girlfriend by the shoulders. He was kind of shaking her and speaking to her in a really abusive way. And I went up towards them and said, how oh, can you tell me where, you know, the latest 7-Eleven, sorry, the nearest 7-Eleven is? You know, can you tell me, is there a 7-Eleven near here? I didn't need a 7-Eleven. I just wanted to distract him and, you know, sort of stop that dynamic. And so he stopped shaking her, stopped speaking verbally to her and, oh, yeah, mate, it's down there kind of thing. And, of course, you know, that little intervention didn't change their relationship, but at least it stopped that behaviour in the moment. Another time I saw a guy physically assaulting his girlfriend, again, in public, and I didn't go near them because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want a physical confrontation. I'm just, that's not very helpful and I'm probably going to end up hurt if I do that. But instead I called out from a distance. I said, hey, mate, leave her alone. And of course he turned to me and said, F off, it's none of your business. That's entirely predictable. But I stayed there. I called out, called out to her. Do you want me to call the police? you know, that's not okay. And just stayed there and kept kind of talking to them both. And eventually she walked off and, you know, the kind of situation eased. 
And again, you know, it didn't change the relationship. And it's possible that he continues to behave in that way towards her. But it tells him that at least some people think his behavior is not okay. It tells her that she doesn't deserve that. And it's not okay for her to be treated in that way. So whether it's intervening in actual violence or intervening in the comments and the jokes and the behaviours that lead up to and feed into violence, there are all kinds of everyday ways that we can take action. Just express our own concern, personalise the issue, state values, no one deserves to be treated like that, you know, it's not cool to talk about women like that, distract. There's all kinds of everyday ways we can start to make a difference. I love those suggestions, the distraction and the calling out from a distance because, I mean, we know that male violence is often perpetrated against other men as well as being perpetrated against women. And so, you know, I understand why some men might be very reticent to actually get up close and try to physically intervene. But and, what and you suggested the last was great. Thing you want to do. I think for some men, there's this idea that that's the only way you can intervene using physical violence. And that's not really an option for me. I'm no good at fighting. I would be in trouble seriously if I engage someone in that way. And that's not, it's not ethical either. Stopping violence by using violence, using violence in self-defense or in a, in a just war. Sure, that's a different issue. But to intervene in someone else's sexist or violent behavior, there's a whole lot of other options available to us, as, as I've described. And it's not about kind of rescuing poor, helpless women, but it is about recognizing that that's harmful behavior, that that is not okay. And just speaking up and saying, you know, sort of expressing our opposition to that. I think that there sometimes has been a bit of an attitude that, oh, that's private business and we won't get involved. And, and that's diminishing the idea that, you know, mm-hmm. a man's home is his castle, that if you can hear a screaming next door and you can hear someone being hurt or furniture being broken, the idea that you should just leave that alone, that idea is far less common in Australia now. I'm glad to say more people are likely to call the police or to go knock on the door. And, you know, you can knock on the door and say, oh, you know, have you got any sugar? I need to borrow a cup of sugar. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. Hi, Lucretia here. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. I always learn so much from my guests and I hope you do too. After all, the whole reason for this podcast is to empower everyday people like you and me with the information and tools we need to stop sexual violence in our communities. I honestly believe we all have a role to play and we can create real change through our own grassroots actions. If you'd like to support this podcast and help fund its production and promotion so we can reach even more people, you can become a patron. Just click the button on the website or in the Podbean app and put in your details. You can give as much or as little as you like and I would be so grateful for your support. Now, let's get back to today's guest. I remember when I was living in Wollongong, um, the, there was domestic violence next door. And in fact, it was the mother, the mother who was really horribly, horribly abusive to her daughter. And so I waited for a time when the daughter who was like 11 or 12 was just walking past on the way home from school and just ducked out and said, hey, 
you know, I've heard what's going on next door. That's really not okay. No one deserves that. If you ever want to come around, feel free to do so, you know, and just offer help, offer support. So there's, there's all kinds of ways we can express support for victim survivors. And of course, challenge perpetrators. Take someone aside and say that behavior is not okay. You really need to seek help or you really need to stop doing that to your girlfriend. I guess that brings me to another question that's top of mind for me is that how do we actually stop perpetrators becoming perpetrators because I was reading something that you wrote in one of your articles about how perpetrators are made not born and I would be really interested to hear your insights around that like what what do you mean when you say that yeah so 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 the basic point there is among men indeed among women no one is born with a kind of you know fundamental orientation towards using violence. No one is born a perpetrator, but various kinds of experiences, various patterns of socialization, various social settings, various social conditions, in other words, make some people much more likely to be perpetrators. So, you know, a boy who is socialized to always be tough, to always be strong, a boy who is socialized to see girls as less than boys, as less worthy than boys, a boy who is socialized to see girls and women as sexual objects, as, you know, only good for one thing, a boy who learns, you know, who doesn't learn how to communicate well, who doesn't learn how to resolve conflict well, a boy who learns that men should be head of the household, men should be dominant in relationships and families, he's much more likely to go on to use violence as an adult than a boy who's been socialized with respect, with gender equality, that girls and boys are equals, that girls and boys you know, have the same rights and responsibilities, that you should treat girls with respect and so on. He's far less likely to be a perpetrator as an adult. And various experiences shape that likelihood. So, for example, you know, take a boy who goes off to school and ends up with a bunch of mates who, also, who, who think that you know, girls are only good for one thing, who, who think that you should see how far you can get with girls. And if they say no, they're just playing hard to get and you should ignore that no and push past resistance and so on. If, you know, if, if the boy um, spends time with those mates, that will impact on his own willingness to use sexual violence, to use sexual coercion. If he then goes off to university and ends up in a residential college where, again, there's the same norms of sexism, of disrespect and so on. If he ends up regularly using pornography that shows women treated in degrading and abusive ways, all those experiences shape his likelihood of using violence. And so, you know, the whole range of ways that we make perpetrators, that we make perpetrators through how we socialise them, through the cultures and norms of schools, of universities, of sporting clubs, of the military, of parliament and so on. And so we have to change the social conditions that breed perpetrators. We also have to change the social conditions that make it more likely that women will blame themselves when they suffer the violence, will make it more likely that women will put up with or tolerate violence and so on. So, I don't, you know, we have to be careful here about blaming the victim, but there are also conditions that make it more likely that women will blame themselves, not seek help and, yeah, sort of, you know, struggle to challenge their own victimisation. And so, you know, we know, for example, that among the adult men who sexually assault women, among adult male rapists, in other words, most of those males first sexually assaulted someone, first sexually coerced someone at around 16 or 17, in their mid-teens, 14, 16, 17, 18. And so we need to intervene at least before then. And so schools are one important site of intervention. So is parenting and how we socialise boys and girls. So is popular culture. 
you know, think of gaming, think of pornography, think of some of the forms of media and culture that often socialize boys and girls into violence, into sexism, and so on. And so to stop perpetrators being made, we actually need social and cultural change, social and cultural change in schools, in media, in universities, um, and so on. And do you think that, you know, if you have a, a son, for example, and you're bringing him up with all the values that you would like him to have, and then he, you send him out into the world and then he starts to socialise with the certain kinds of young men who have very different attitudes around women. Do you think that is a point when some young men become compromised and can go the wrong way? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've got a 16-year-old son. I think about his experience. I think about my own experience as a boy and a young man. And I would hope that my 16-year-old, if he, you know, when he goes to university, let's say, let's say when he's first at university, he starts hanging out with a group of guys who, as it turns out, are quite sexist. So, you know, treat women and girls in pretty hostile ways, like getting young women drunk and then, you know, having sex with them when they don't really want to and so on. I hope that he goes, stuff this. These are not my friends. These are not the kind of guys actually that I want to hang out with. And he gravitates to a different peer group. I hope he self-selects out of that peer group. But it's possible that he might be invested in that peer group or want to do the activity that they're part of, you know, a particular sport or a particular computer game or something, and puts up with that and becomes increasingly tolerant of that and that it starts to impact on his treatment of girls and women and his behaviour towards girls and women. That would be really dismaying, obviously. But, you know, what, what we need to do, obviously, is equip boys and young men with the skills, with the resilience, with the values, so that they resist those invitations into sexism. They resist invitations into sexism and violence from other men and from media. So, you know, I think about my son, I think about my own experience. Pornography is part of many boys and young men's experience. And I hope that the porn that my son encounters, you know, which inevitably he will, and I'm sure he has already, I hope that when he sees sexist and degrading behaviour in pornography, which is absolutely routine in pornography, he's much more likely to go, oh, that's sexist, that's rubbish. I don't want to look at, I don't want to masturbate to images of women being degraded, images of women being choked or, you know, strangled, in other words, or being slapped or being talked about in degrading ways. I hope... If he uses porn, he gravitates to porn that shows us mutually pleasurable, consensual, respectful, fun interactions rather than degradation, hostility and violence. And so, so if we can socialise boys and men well, then I think they will make different choices faced with peers, faced with cultures, faced with conditions that might in other circumstances breed violence. But we have to tackle those things themselves. You know, we can't just leave it up to parents and schools. We also have to tackle those industries, the porn industry and the computer gaming industry. We have to tackle the workplace cultures and the sporting cultures that invite boys and boys and men back into sexism, back into violence. Because I think it's so, so many times particular behaviours are normalised and the more you are exposed to those behaviours, the more normal, inverted commas, it becomes. And so Absolutely. if you do have those, multi, you're talking about having really multi-level interventions, you know, yeah. you might learn one thing at home which is not healthy, but then at school you are challenged on that belief and then you might see something in porn that is not healthy, but everyone says, oh, that's just what everyone watches, that's just how it goes. And then 
but you then get challenged by that in a social media post that you see somewhere else. And yeah, or by your have- girlfriend. Your girlfriend says, actually, I don't want to do the things that you're mm. watching in porn. That I find them, you know, physically uncomfortable or degrading and so on. Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, there's some really interesting research finding on, on sexual harassment, for example, and it finds that people are less likely to be sexually harassing themselves and more likely to speak up about other people's sexual harassment and harassing behaviour if they perceive their workplace as having a strong norm of intolerance for sexual harassment. If people in, are in a workplace and think, my workplace doesn't think this behaviour is okay, my workplace has strong norms of respect, of nonviolence, and so on, then even if they themselves are oriented towards harassment, would do that in other circumstances, they don't do it because of their perception of the norms around them. And they're more likely, well, at least other people are more likely to speak up if they perceive that their workplace will support them, will encourage them to say, hey, that behaviour is not okay. You can't talk about someone that way. Mm. And so we know that the kind of what we see around us, so what we perceive around us makes a difference to our own willingness to behave in positive or um, negative ways. I find that I feel a little bit more optimistic hearing you talk about the fact that you know, they could be have some kinds of beliefs brought on by particular experiences, but then they could be potentially unraveled through their exposure to it's not other information. Way. Sorry to interrupt you, but, um, you know, you mm. take a, let's say a 16 year old boy who's grown up in a pretty, you know, with pretty poor parenting with a dad who's really modeled, you know, authoritarian, aggressive, sexist ways of behaving. He, he ended up in a school, you know, that he had mates like that. He's seen porn that does that and so on that doesn't fix him in those attitudes and those behaviours for life. Things can change for him. And, you know, as a 17-year-old or as an 18-year-old, he may become a more respectful, a more non-violent young guy, a lovely young guy, in other words, that you'd be delighted for your, you know, for your daughter to go out with. And it may be being exposed to positive influence through a girlfriend or through female friends or indeed male friends who might challenge him on that. It may be a teacher at school who's kind of an inspiring role model and who, or, you know, who sort of teaches him about equality, about democracy, about respect. It may be reading a book or hearing a story or listening to music that starts to shift his beliefs. It may be being exposed to a different peer group, going off to university and being around uh, young women and other young men who go, God, why do you think that? You know, where does that come from? And try and invite him to kind of lift his game. We shouldn't be pessimistic about the possibilities for change among boys and young men. At the same time, there are clearly some young men who who are regular and committed perpetrators of violence and shifting their violence and their commitment to violence is hard. And it may take significant intervention, intensive intervention, including intensive education or indeed criminal justice intervention, a time in jail and ideally rehabilitation programs in jail and offender programs, perpetrator programs to really shift what can be entrenched attitudes and behaviours for some people. Mm. Well, I'm conscious that we've taken a lot of your time today and I'm very (coughs) grateful and I, I feel inspired as I always do when I hear you speak. I'd like to leave our listeners with just something from you around if I'm an everyday person, What is one thing that you could suggest that I do as a man, as a young man, to play a role in stopping sexual violence in my community? I would say the first thing for any man to do, the first thing for any man who wants to make some kind of difference to domestic and sexual violence can do is actually start with ourselves. 
look at our own lives, look at our, how we treat the women and girls in our lives, indeed how we treat the men and boys in our lives, and put our own house in order. Strive for, for respect, for fairness, for nonviolence in our everyday relations with women and girls, with other men and boys. And if I can squeeze in a second one, then speak up, start to speak up, start to speak up around mates, around friends in everyday life to, you know, lift, lift the people around us to a higher standard. I think that's excellent advice and very practical advice as well, which is important, very important. We want yeah, to look, I'll say this to someone who's I say this is someone who's not perfect, who's absolutely got it wrong and, you know, behaved in crappy ways at times. And part of that putting a house in order is, you know, all of us need to do that. And we don't need to be perfect to play some role. You don't need to have never behaved in a poor or disrespectful way to now start to speak out against that. What you need to do, obviously, is hold yourself to account, take responsibility for your actions, make amends where you need to, and start to play that positive role. Mm. Mm. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on Medusa's Might today. I'm, I'm sure the listeners have been writing down notes or just taking mental notes throughout <laughs> this entire conversation. I know I have been noting many things for further reflection. I'm going to include links to your socials and your amazing website in the show notes. And it's called, remind me again, it's xyonline. Is that yeah, the X, name? xyonline.net. And look, one, one of the things I put on that website is a really sort of sprawling, a really kind of wide collection of resources for everyday men, for advocates, for educators and others about what men can do and about the positive roles. Men. Well, I have referred to that website more than once myself, and I can safely say it is a fantastic resource. If you want to learn more about these issues, educate yourself, find out just more information, please do check it out. And thank you, Michael, again for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for your company today. If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our express personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.